Welcome back to Season 3 of Summer Reading with the Deals. This is Episode 6. Um, we're talking about The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This is Adam Deal, and I'm joined by Whitney Deal, my wife. And uh, today we're going to talk about Alexei Fyodorovich Karamazov, who, even just saying that name, I'm just like, who is that? We're talking about Alyosha, the... Uh, I guess the focus of the novel, Whitney's, let's start with that. Like, if Dimitri is the protagonist, would you would you say that that's an accurate way to describe Alyosha, or how would you describe him in, in his place in the novel? Yeah, the preface that we talked about, the author's note, made it clear that Alexei is the, I guess, the hero of the novel, but then he acknowledges that he's not a typical hero, um, people will question whether he's interesting enough to be a hero or exciting enough to be a hero. But he's, I mean, he is the hero of the novel. That's a good way to put it, maybe, because Dimitri is the active presence throughout much of the novel and the, the loud voice throughout much of the novel. But um, it's Alyosha who is the one who helps and helps rescue other characters, um, helps them along the path to redemption. Um, he's not doing it in ways that are flashy and dramatic, but he is the hero in that sense, that he is being God's agent for helping people along the road to salvation or redemption. You know, I, I can't remember exactly the, the podcast. I'm going to try and bring it up on my... Uh Spotify here. There's a Tim Keller sermon that I heard somewhat recently, like within the last month, where he talks about the banality of evil and just that concept of we as a society have decided that evil, unvirtuous characters are more interesting than virtuous, faithful characters. And yet, um, you know, every time something evil happens in the world, it's pretty easy to reduce it to, well, that person was evil. You know, that they, they, they chose evil. It's, it's, you know, the sad thing about school shootings is, like, there isn't that much difference between them. And I think that despite us wanting to watch films about evil villains and things like that and finding these charismatic performances of evil villains or anti-heroes to be compelling. In real life, when you're around someone that radiates goodness and exhibits true godly virtue, which is virtue and humility, that is so magnetic. You really like being around that person. That person yes. makes you feel um, lifted up and appreciated and, and honored. And when you're around someone who is evil, who does a lot of evil in life, um, they're selfish, they don't care about you, they make you feel like it's terrible to be around that person. If that person ends up being charismatic to you, oftentimes it gets deeply soured by the end of interacting with the person because you right. realize they've only been using you um, or you know, lying to you that the charisma all was a front for something that ends up hurting you. So 
even the most charismatic versions of evil in the real world are just ugly and you know, you you want to run away from them in real life once you experience them. And they come they come from a place of manipulation rather than an artless, genuine desire uh, f- for other people's flourishing. And um, you know, I've just been thinking about th- that that section of that sermon, and if if I can find it, I'll put it in the the link. Um, but just that concept that that Tim Keller is bringing up, which which really made me, you know, rethink about why do I watch what I watch? Am I watching something to watch someone be villainous? Um, and, and you know, for that reason, like I've never watched Breaking Bad. Like I just I can't bring myself to watch something where someone chooses villainy in the first episode. And never has the option of choosing sainthood. Like, everything I know about Breaking Bad is, it's like less, you know, the whole show is built on the premise of lesser of two evils. Is it better to do this or better to do that if if each one is going to make you break bad, so to speak? Because in reality, if you are willing to be vulnerable and humble and ask for help and tell people at a local church or, you know, even your neighbors or the people you work with at a workplace, like, I have cancer and I don't have the money to pay for it for my treatment and I need help. People often will help you. And that is beautiful and glamorous and wonderful in a way that becoming a meth dealer and destroying a bunch of people's lives, like aiding and abetting, destroying a whole bunch of people's lives who are using that meth. I mean, I don't see how a person who has a meth addict family member or loved one can watch that show and and can watch that show because they, you, how would you not think about the, the collateral damage, so to speak of the choices that this man is making? And I think that that's, you know, I brought that up on the Dimitri episode about, the the trial is really not about Theodore, like he's already dead. It's 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 not about uh, doing a great character study into the murdered person. It's about assessing the character of the potential murderer, and I think that that's that's why shows like Breaking Bad, um, and you know we've watched The Wire. It's not like we haven't watched shows that are about drug dealers, um, and it I think that the the idea of a show built upon, like we tried to watch Ozark. We got about a season in and we just couldn't watch it anymore. It just got too dark. And I think that, that that concept of we have enough access to either like family members that are addicts or friends, you know, family members that are addicts, where, where it is just hard to stomach watching someone do something for someone to to basically succeed in evil, if that makes sense. And at least with The Wire, this is maybe a rabbit trail, but I think it's a really helpful one for this book because Alyosha is a depiction of virtue, and he's not boring. If you were around him, you'd never think he was boring. You'd feel like Grishinka thinks. Grishinka's a pretty jaded person, but when she's around Alyosha for the first time, she just feels so lifted up. She's so moved. But The Wire, I think, for me, it... 
it does get too dark sometimes still when it feels like it's almost like um, valorizing this deep evil, but there are things about it. It still shows people who are actually fighting for virtue, and that to me that kind of redeems that show for me, like whether it's bubbles getting clean finally and then like helping some other people get clean or like, um, you know, even just like Bunny Colvin, like somebody who's like, let me adopt one of these kids and try to help them instead of just throwing my hands up. Like there are people still trying for virtue and it's, it's messy, but at least they're trying. I think you're bringing a good point about what the wire does that, you know, other shows don't, that I think that Brothers K is actually doing as well, which is it's trying to give some level of hope to a relatively hopeless situation. Um, I think that The Wire is still pretty jaded. Like, I, I just, I know how David Simon is, and, and he is just not an optimistic person. Um, and uh, I guess I guess that's part of people that get jaded and cynical are at their heart very optimistic, and they get so disappointed that things are it's kind of kind of like Ivan, like that mm-hmm. they get so disappointed that things aren't ideal that they they shroud their optimism in so much like you know dirty realism, so to speak, that it's just it, it's like that. You know, you watch The Wire and you think like, oh, well, this is just like almost like a fictionalized documentary of West Baltimore and the drug trade and and the the police procedures to try and, um, you know, get drug dealers off the streets. And um, and and the Brothers Karamazov has, has got somewhat similar like it doesn't I don't feel like it. it is saying the church is going to win. Uh, I think it's just saying there's a battle for the soul of Russia between basically the Western European influence and the the Eastern Orthodox Church, and and one of those is going to be the governing force. And 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 you know, to go back to Ivan one more time, his article about the the uh, ecclesiastical courts. He basically says eventually the state should should rise to become the church. Like like it should be like like ancient Israel, where where you have the governors of the, the land are, are not just the kings, but they're also like the the prophets and the priests. And so, you know, obviously in Christianity, prophet, priest, king, Jesus Christ, like we have that. We have the kingdom of heaven. But to what degree can the kingdom of earth match the kingdom of heaven? I, I think that there's always going to be a discrepancy. And that, that's kind of where Alyosha comes into this novel. So, um, yeah, just, yeah, that's why I want to start with, like, is he, is he the hero? Is he the, the like, what, what is he in the novel? And I think what he really is is he is the force through which God works, on almost every character. Yeah, which in, inherently is going to minimize his um, kind of egocentric individuality to some extent, um, being a vessel for the Holy Spirit in the world. But, you know, I appreciate that he's sent out into the world by Father Zosima 
into, you know, really dysfunctional family um, to just be a force for reconciliation and healing. And it's, it's not quick and effective. You know, that, that's the realism. Like we were talking about David Simon's realism. Like he, he's seeking realism, which is why he actually, I think, shows on The Wire some characters who are more virtuous because in real life there are people who are fighting to make True. the city better and not worse. You know, like a show, to me, a show like Ozark or something, the dark vision in that show, kind of like where even the preacher is really corrupt, corruptible or stuff like that. It kind of just, it feels like a fan, dark fantasy or something. Whereas Brothers K is very realistic in a lot of ways, um, despite its grandeur. Um, and Aliosha is going into a very dark family, a dark world, and he's not able to prevent his brother from getting for from getting accused of murder. He's not able to prevent his father from being murdered. He's not able to prevent all sorts of bad things from happening, but it's the long game that matters, you know, so to speak, um, in the long run, he's having an effect on people. God through him is having an effect on people. Um, and it can be through those little onions, through those just little moments. He doesn't have to do anything grand in order to have an influence. Um, that's, that's like Father Zosima says, you wouldn't believe the power of humble love. The world doesn't believe that humble love has that is that much power, but it it does. And I um, was reading a book recently that by Jen Wilkin um, called None Like Him. It's a good book. It's about you know the the just mighty grand qualities that God has that we don't have. But was saying that I think she said something like there was a room, big conference room full of pastors and missionaries and people, and they asked who influenced you to come to Christ and like 75% of them said my mother and all those mothers are probably people who feel like they were just doing their job just hum humbly loving their kids like not doing anything special but had an impact for the kingdom of heaven that lasts forever you know that's so important and that I feel like that's Alyosha too. Like he brings a kind of like a almost motherly, tender, unconditional love the way a mother loves a little child to just like whoever he's around, around and interacting with. You know, it's interesting that you say that because in a way he does kind of like mother his dad a little bit. Um, and, and I bring up that. So, so this is in book four, I believe. <laughs> um, Book four, strains or lacerations. Um, this is chapter two at his father's, and so um, this is um, Ivan has left, and um, Fyodor Pavlovich is talking about Ivan and and just like the situation between Grushinka and and Dmitri and him, and and the situation between. Dmitri and Katerina Ivanovna and um, Ivan. He says, it's true he's never asked for money and he won't get a fig out of me in any way. So he's talking about Ivan. I, my dearest Alexei Fyodorovich, plan to live on this earth as long as possible. Let it be known to you and therefore I need every kopeck and the longer I live, 
the more I'll need of it. He continued pacing from one corner of the room to the other, keeping his hands in the pockets of his loose, greasy yellow cotton coat. At the moment, I'm still a man, only 55 years old, but I want to occupy that position for about 20 years longer. I'll get old and disgusting, and they won't come to me then of their own free will, and that's when I'll need my dear money. So, so he's thinking, like, I'm still going to want to have an active sexual life and have orgies at my house when I'm 75, but no one's going to want me then. And it's like, no one wants you now, but... But he's like basically saying, I'm going to need to have even more sugar to be a sugar daddy, you know, when I'm 75 than I am now. So he says, so now I'm saving up more and more for myself alone, sir, my dear son, Alexei Fyodorovich. Let it be known to you, because let it be known to you that I want to live in my wickedness to the very end. Wickedness is sweet. Everyone denounces it, but everyone lives in it, only they all do it on the sly, and I do it openly. And for this ingenuousness of mine, the wicked ones all attack me. And I don't want your paradise, Alexei Fyodorovich, let it be known to you. It's even unfitting for a decent man to go to your paradise if there really is such a place. He says, I say a man falls asleep and doesn't wake up and that's all. Remember me in your prayers if you want to, and if not, the devil take you. That's my philosophy. Ivan spoke well yesterday, well here yesterday, though we were all drunk. Ivan's a braggart and he doesn't have so much learning or any special education either. He's silent, and he grins at you silently. That's how he gets by. Alyosha listened to him in silence. He won't even speak to me. And so you see him, like, Fyodor is getting more animated as he, like, gets kind of angry that Ivan is kind of judgmental of him. Like, he knows that he's looking at him thinking, like, my foolish father. He says, and when it does... When he does, it's all put on. He's a scoundrel, your Ivan. I could marry Grushka right now if I wanted to, because with your with money, one only needs to want, Alexei Fyodorovich, sir, and one gets everything. That's just what Ivan is afraid of, and he keeps he's keeping an eye on me to see that I don't get married, and that's why he's pushing Mitka to marry Grushka. He wants to keep me from Grushka that way, as if I'd leave him any money even if I didn't marry Grushka. And on the other hand, if Mitka marries Grushka then Ivan can take his rich fiancé for himself. That's how he figures. He's a scoundrel, your Ivan. And then Alyosha says, how irritable you are. It's because of yesterday. Why don't you go and lie down? So the yesterday meaning the day that Dimitri comes in and basically like kicks him almost to death. And Fyodor Pavlovich says, you say that, the old man suddenly remarked, as if it suddenly had just as if it had just entered his head for the first time. You say that, and it doesn't make me angry. But if Ivan said the same thing to me, I'd get angry. With you alone, I have kind moments. Otherwise, I'm an evil man. You're not an evil man. You're just twisted, Alyosha smiled. And so, I don't know. I've been thinking about that a lot because to, to our discussion yesterday about the correct a fool lest he stay in his error, I don't necessarily think I'm, you know, thinking of someone as a fool when I do try and, like, help them see things correctly. But it's interesting that he says, I would have gotten mad at Ivan for saying exactly the same thing you did. So truth is not what is upsetting Fyodor. It's the deliverer of the truth. Yeah. Zosima says um, that you, if you have to deal with sin and you are choosing between reacting in humble love and reacting with force, 
which it, it seems like both could be legitimate options, the way he says it to me. You, sometimes you might react with force to sin and want to rebuke it. Um, Zosima says, if you're choosing between them, just default to humble love. Choose humble love. And he says, like, for example, even if you were in the position of judge of someone officially, like he's like saying, avoid judging other people. But if you're in a position like you're actually the judge and you have to decide um, if you have mercy on the person, even if the person you have mercy on like reacts with ingratitude and reacts terribly and just thumbs his nose at you and goes off, um, that might that just means it's not his time yet and later God could strike him with the mercy that he's been shown and it could ch- touch his heart. Or maybe there's a third person just watching the situation and it will strike, God will strike their heart with the mercy that you've shown. And that's what the result will be. But either way, you're not going to go wrong showing mercy and showing humble love to someone. And I think that makes me think of what Alyosha is doing with his father here because it, a lot of times Alyosha has seen his father doing terrible things, whether the things he's saying right now are terrible. And then the, he's actually have to had to be at his father's house when the orgies and debaucheries are going on. Um, and he decides here not to react with force. He kind of steps into his father's shoes and says, well, you're sick and you're irritable and you're struggling and your nature's been distorted. He just has this, he has this ability to see people like Grishinka and his father and Dimitri and um, see that they're not, all evil and the way that it is kind of maternal or paternal the way you can you can see your child when they're having a tantrum and being saying I hate you and you can just see through it to something that you still love and something that's still sweet um whereas I find that contrasted with how both Ivan and Dimitri look at their father's face and they hate his face they feel disgust and loathing from the fe- very features of his face, from his Adam's apple or things like that. <laughs> his little smile, little leering smile. Um, they they just loathe him. Um, it seems like they could never like look through and see him with compassion, look through the, the external, almost caricature of evil that's on his face like a mask. And I think that, you know, to that point, Alyosha is trying to see the spiritual and is not stopping at the material. So he, he, is, he is aware of the material existence of things, but he sees the spiritual, uh, I guess, the spiritual weight of things or the spiritual aspect of things. And, you know, Alyosha is, is so interesting because he doesn't come at things with judgment. He comes at things with compassion uh, and we talked about that with, like, after he talks to Dimitri, um, he has that moment of great compassion, like, telling him that he, um, you know, he, he didn't think he was the murderer. And that, that, like, Dimitri is so overwhelmed and relieved and he's, like, blissful. And, and he, basically, Alyosha, as we talked about in the last episode, almost, like, starts to to take on the grief that, that Dimitri's eventually going to have to face himself. Um, 
And there's just something about that that I think is just characteristic of the, of the Christian faith. Like, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If you start your journey of faith, you start with your own sin, but it's very, very easy to start seeing the sins of the world thereafter. And it's wrong for a Christian to just be blithe and like, like eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. Like, it, there is a time and a season for everything under under heaven. There's a time to, to rejoice and a time to mourn. And um, I think that that, that, um, that section of Ecclesiastes, which is chapter 3, is actually applicable to Alyosha because some people might say, like, Alyosha's too pie in the sky or too, you know, he's too much of a Pollyanna or whatever, and... Um, I think people without faith just can't understand, like, how, how could someone find peace in the midst of grief or find joy in the midst of a trial? Um, and, you know, if you have ever had, you know, I don't know, a nice mug of ice cream. I like to put my ice cream in mugs because I don't drink coffee out of mugs, so, you know. What else am I going to use them for? Um, even in the midst of a great trial, I can still enjoy a, a, you know, a, a mug of ice cream. And, um, and the reason I can do that is because God has given me the, the receptors for, for other emotions besides worry or, or, or despair or, or whatever or anger. And um, I think that, you know, just considering Alyosha and his lack of judgment like, he's not a judgmental person. And Whitney brought up a great point about, like, the third parties seeing the interactions. I think one of the greatest um, detriments to the Christian faith is the judgmental um, attitudes of people that are professing Christians toward particular sinners. And, and that turns off third parties very quickly because they say, well, if I was guilty of that, they would feel that way about me too. And I think that, you know, it, it takes an incredible amount of faith to, to love your neighbor as yourself, to see every person on earth as someone that Jesus got on the cross for. And it, that all comes from your personal relationship with God. And I think that, that you know, to, to kind of circle back onto our, like, kind of overwhelming discussion or overriding discussion of this episode, I think that virtue and faith are unique to every person because it's different for Whitney to say, tell the truth than it is for me because each of us has a relationship with God. And so the same, um, the same like statute is in place. Don't, bear false witness, but each of us has our own hearts and our own proclivities. And so anytime someone is acting in faith and, and, you know, pursuing righteousness, they're doing it through their own personal relationship with God. And so their righteousness, while it may on the outside seem homogenous with everyone else's, is actually deeply personal to them. Because they they chose God in that moment over sin, and 
And so it, it, it's kind of a hard ex, uh, topic to explain because it's, it's so big picture. But I think that that's what Alyosha is showing is like he has a personal relationship with Christ instead of an impersonal cultural relationship or something that, that, that seems uh, robotic or mechanical. And to your point, too, that it can be quite um, secret or idiosyncratic how God is working in the life of a person. So that means that sometimes it it's not showing outward um, growth yet, but there's something happening under the surface. The seed is starting to take root under the surface sometimes, and God is at work in a person's life, but you wouldn't know it as an outsider, because it's so personal, like you're saying. It's not about outwardly just changing your behavior. It's a deeply personal thing that's taking root in you when you're when you're growing in faith. And so I think that that is part of what Alyosha is able to do and that Zosima is recommending doing is looking at each person and just thinking, well, I don't know what God has in store for that person or what God might be doing in that person. There may not be any outward signs of it yet, but that doesn't mean it can't happen. It's just this love always hopes um, that there's a possibility that this person's not showing me anything that that looks promising right now, but that doesn't mean that nothing is happening like God could be working. And it makes me think of that, Part of, in the chapter called An Onion, which is so key for Alyosha, I think. Alyosha had been frightened of going to see Grushinka because of her reputation. Everything he'd heard about her had made him think that she was kind of, you know, predatory and cynical and debauched and just terrible. Plus, he could, on a very personal level, be very angry with this woman for coming in between his family and causing so many problems and everything. And so, but he meets her and there's this very striking moment. Um, and in fact, after this um, little speech, it says, Alyosha stopped because he was out of breath. In spite of his ill humor, Rakitin looked at him with astonishment. He had never expected such a tirade from the gentle Alyosha. So this is supposed to be kind of like a tirade, but I'm going to read a little bit of it. Um, he says, Don't laugh, Rakitin. Don't smile. Don't talk of the dead. He was better than anyone in the world. I didn't speak to you as a judge, but as the lowest of the judged. What am I beside her? I came here seeking my ruin and said to myself, what does it matter in my cowardliness? But she, after five years in torment, as soon as anyone says a word from the heart to her, it makes her forget everything, forgive everything in her tears. The man who has wronged her has come back. He sends for her, and she forgives him everything and hastens joyfully to meet him, and she won't take a knife with her. She won't. No, I'm not like that. I don't know whether you are, Misha, but I'm not like that. It's a lesson to me. She's more loving than we. Have you heard her speak before of what she has just told us? No, you haven't. If you had, you'd have understood her long ago, and the person insulted the day before yesterday must forgive her. Must forgive her, too. She will when she knows. And she shall know. This soul is not yet at peace with itself. One must be tender with it. There may be treasure in that soul. Now, when I got done reading that little tirade, I wrote it this in the margin, he's innocent, but is he shrewd? Because, you know, Jesus says to be both shrewd and innocent. Um, 
it's so beautiful the way he sees her and he's like, there may be treasure in her soul. Like, look, it may be something beautiful in her, even if she's cynically trying to cover it up and saying like, no, maybe I'll just kill him. He's like, I don't think she means that. I think that really she's ready to forgive him. I think she's got love in her, in her heart. Like he just sees potential in her, has a vision for potential. And Rakitin is just disgusted by that. He, he gives a coarse laugh and then he says, are you in love with her too? This monk's in love with you, Agrafina Alexandrovna. It made me think of this verse in Titus, which um, is something I've kind of pondered over and not always known what to make of. But in Titus it says, to the pure all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. I think that the um, the constant contrast between Rakitin and Alyosha, Rakitin is one of the the most like unredeemed characters in the whole book. I think even more than Smirnikov, like he has no ounce of repentance suggested at all, um, as far as I can remember. And he he's defiled and unbelieving, and so nothing is pure to him. He doesn't even think Alyosha is pure. And so, um, you know, contrasting this, like, you know, this whole situation with Grishinka and, and Rakitin and Alyosha, I was thinking about the same thing I mentioned on the Mitya episode. In most cases, people, even wicked people, are far more naive and simple-hearted than one generally assumes, and so are we. You know, the, there's an element of this novel that's just saying none of us knows how childlike we are just how close to being children we still are, no matter our age. And Rakitin is a great example of a know-it-all. You know, he is one of these people that he... He's like a gossip hound. And I think what is so just gives me, you know, a bad taste in the mouth about Rakitin is that he's a novice just like Alyosha, so he's working to be a monk, and he doesn't believe it, and it's just the fraud, the phoniness of someone going to seminary and trying to get into the leadership of the church and not believing is an awful thing. And, and I think that, you know, we've talked about this in several episodes. <sighs> Dostoevsky is is seeing the world through this lens of, for lack of a better word, influencers. And woe, woe to the one, you know, it, it would be better to, to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown in the ocean than to lead one of the little ones astray. And Rakitin is, is hell-bent on leading people astray and... Uh, basically destroying their faith in God. He takes Alyosha to Grushinkis to try to do that to him. That's the He sees him at a weak moment when he's um, upset that his elder's body has the odor of corruption, and he pounces on him in this satanic way. It's bad. And he's doing it for 25 rubles, which is close to 30 rubles, which is, you know, maybe not the equivalent of 30 pieces of silver, but it's it's... I think that Dostoevsky is creating a Judas-style character in Rakitin. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed, um, I was reading the Gospel of Matthew um, this week, and 
I was reading the section where all the disciples are asking, like, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? Like, one, Jesus says, one of you, one of you will, will, will um, betray me. And they're all saying, is it I, Lord? Is it I, Lord? And Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? And it just hit me so hard. He doesn't call him Lord. He calls mm-hmm. him teacher. And I think that that's, that's supposed to be indicative of in that moment, they all are confessing Jesus is Lord. But Judas Iscariot is saying, you're still just a teacher. And um, I mean, it was so sobering to think about that because... I don't want Jesus just to teach me and then not, you know, it's like not have sway over me or not, not have a relationship with me because I, I'm a teacher, but my, my vision of education is like my relationship with a person starts as a teacher and it might matriculate into a friendship or it might matriculate into, you know, like uh, a mentorship, it might matriculate into just an acquaintanceship where it's like I see people all around Augusta all the time and they'll say, hey, Mr. Deal, you know, and, and it's like they still remember me as their teacher and, and I just really appreciate that because it's like, yeah, that's what I chose to do with my life. So if they were to see me and be like, oh, there's that guy that's good at trivia, like, yeah, I like to play trivia and I, I try to be good at it, but if that's how I was known to people that I'd been a teacher of, I'd feel like my role had really not been codified in their minds. And and Jesus has shown that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He has shown that he is the Lord of, like, he controls the weather. I mean, he, he, do, he does things so miraculous that it's undeniable. He raises people from the dead. And Judas is still calling him teacher. And, and, and that's just indicative, I think, of his heart has never changed for Christ. And, and Rakitin is, is, is in that same boat, except he's, he's not even really, like he's not even hanging out at the monastery anymore by the end of the novel. He's basically trying to make money as, as a gossip reporter almost. Yeah, it, that demotion that you bring up with Judas, where he's trying to demote Jesus to just being a teacher, I actually think that's very relevant for what was happening in Russia at this time as well, because um, it's kind of like, I mean, that's what Thomas Jefferson was doing famously with his, when he took this, the New Testament, but took out the miracles because he wanted to demote Jesus from Lord to just teacher and say, let's just listen to his like nice moral teachings as if there's power to follow those moral teachings without actually having a relationship with God and making him your Lord. But all that to say, in Russia at this time, there had been a phase um, in Russian cultural life um, where people had been advocating for atheism and saying God, the idea of God is a hindrance and we just you know jettison it. But then by the time this novel was being written, um, there was this group called the Populists who were Slavophilic. In other words, they um, kind of revered the Russian peasants, similar to Dostoevsky. So Dostoevsky felt heartened by that. He thought, oh, good. Like young people today, they seem to be wanting to get back to like Russian culture. And he said, 
they revere Christian values. They're not trying to jettison Christian values, but they still don't believe in God. And so basically, this book is partly Dostoevsky trying to help young people process through this idea that you can't embrace Christian values without embracing Christ because you need the power of Christ to have Christian values. And that is actually what Rakitin is trying to do is he is saying, let's have universal brotherhood, fraternity, liberty, things like that. We don't need God in order to have universal brotherhood and love. That's what he tells um, uh, Mitya when he's visiting him in prison. We don't need God in order to have universal love and brotherly love. And Mitya's like, that's stupid. Yes. That's a stupid thing to say. Um, I think Rakitin is doing something similar to Judas in that sense, where he's trying to demote Jesus, like kind of keep the the principles but demote Jesus. And in fact, um, Rakitin says to Alyosha, so you despise me now for those 25 rubles? I've sold my friend, you think? But you're not Christ, you know, and I'm not Judas. And Alyosha says, oh, Rakitin, I'm sure you had forgotten about it. Which, Alyosha is just not a grudge holder. And... It says, but this was the last straw for Rakitin. The fact that Alyosha didn't treat his sin as being a grand betrayal, but was just forgiving and moved on, infuriates Rakitin. And Rakitin says, damnation take you all and each of you. Why the devil did I take you up? I don't want to know you from this time forward. Go alone. There's your road. And just leaves. Um, It's funny, like, He's like, I'm not Judas, you're not Christ, but he's like, he wanted his betrayal to be epic on the level of Judas and Christ for some reason, and he was really mad that Elisha was like, I wasn't even thinking of that. You know, even though Judas is famous for mm. being the the identifier of Christ to the authorities, which I know you might think, like, how would it be that hard? It will it's first century AD, like there aren't electrical lights. It's the dark of night in the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane. and uh, it just wouldn't have been easy. And and the 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 Jerusalem uh, authorities were not familiar with Jesus. He had only been to Jerusalem for like the feasts, and so he he his ministry is almost entirely in the north of Israel and in, in Cana and Galilee, and and you know. Those places, uh, you know, closer to where Nazareth mm-hmm. is, which is no where, photographs, so yeah. who knows what he looks like. And so, um, all that to say, you know, Judas does he does have an active role in the crucifixion of Christ, but so does everyone. And I think that it 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 takes faith to be able to say, I deserve the scorn of Judas and the punishment of Judas, but Jesus took that on for me. And, um, you know, Alyosha just has this, he has this this grace and mercy to him that's just so interesting because I, I think that in the real world, when you see someone be merciful to someone who doesn't deserve mercy or see someone be gracious to someone who has not, you know, asked for it, but they're given something more than they're asked, it's, it's, it's moving and it's overwhelming. And, and I do think that there is a place for, um, you know, talking about 
basically like what breaks us and why it breaks us. But to to want to stay broken and not want to be redeemed by God is just a it's just wrong thing. It's 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 choosing starvation over food. You know, and, and of course, like people have eating disorders, so that's you know that's a good like illustration of that. Like, how do people turn on their bodies? You know, their body is saying, "I need food, I need food, I need food," and their mind and their spirit is just saying, "No, you don't, no, you don't." And and mm-hmm. I watched a documentary called Thin uh, about eating disorders, and you know, just this week, and and I'd I'd seen it before, but I watched it again, and. Um, you know, I really have a heart for people with eating disorders. Like some people just think, how could you, how could you become that way? And it's like, it, it comes from a brokenness. It's a response to brokenness. And so is drug addiction. And so is, you know, um, infidelity. And so, so, the, and so is like pride and judgment yeah. of others too. I mean, even the, the sins that are more yeah. like respectable in the world right I guess you would say or or maybe more invisible uh-huh you yeah know? yeah um and and you know I, I think that that's one of the challenges is like how do you have an Alyosha heart toward you know in any given situation and 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 the thing about it is is like Alyosha even has Christ's level of forgiveness like Christ saying, um, you know, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do, on, on the cross. Like, he, he is at, in, at the point of death saying, like, God, the Father, like, these people don't, they're, they're, to the point of the, the end of that first chapter, they're naive. They don't know. They're, they're more childlike in their, in their destruction of me than they understand. And, um, and Alyosha just just embodies that. I mean, he, he is, you know, one of the things that it says about Alyosha in this, in this, uh, Dostoevsky and the brothers Karamazov, it says on page 116, um, in his religious zeal, Alyosha puts his soul in the hands of the man whom he conceives to be the most nearly like Christ himself, namely Father Zosima, an elder in the Russian Orthodox tradition of the elders, Alyosha regarded him as the most saintly man who ever lived, so that when Zosima dies and his body decomposes prematurely, this seemingly reverse miracle for a time shatters his faith. And it's like Alyosha does what many people do, and I certainly have done. It's like they have these spiritual forefathers and foremothers that they say, well, I I couldn't be as faithful as that person. That person is the epitome of faith. But really, the epitome of faith is is Jesus putting his faith in the Father to the point of, like, I'm going to die on this cross and trust that you'll resurrect me. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up about the odor of corruption because I think that's an important crisis moment for Alyosha, and it seems... Um, it seems like Alyosha, I think, has to realize that Father Zosima is alive where it really counts in eternity and that this is just a sojourn in this world and in this body. In fact, that the Cana of Galilee section where he kind of comes to terms with all of this ends saying that the Father Zosima had bidden him to sojourn in the world. And 
I think he he can see by the end of this chapter that Zosima only had a sojourn in this world too, and where it really counts, he's incorruptible. But if the odor of corruption thing had never happened, I think Alyosha would have continued idolizing um, Father Zosima instead of Christ, and I think he might have continued idolizing life in a monastery instead of life out in the world. And Father Zosima had already told him. No, go out in the world and make a difference. And he would never have gone to visit Grushinka because he wouldn't have had that moment of discouragement. He was scared to go visit Grushinka. He saw it as like a, a temptation or something. Um, but he needed to go visit Grushinka because he has a real redeeming influence on her. And so everything worked together for good, and he just finally can see it by the time he gets to the end of this Cana of Galilee section. And I love that it's called Cana of Galilee because he starts thinking about, because of Father Paisi brings it up, he starts thinking about the turning of water into wine um, at Cana, and he starts thinking about the fact that um, Jesus hadn't come down to earth to make wine abundant at poor weddings, but he just does it out of kindness to his mother. He does it just out of a sense of bringing like feasting and joy to people in the world, there's just joy to be had in the world. And that's what Father Zosima taught, that just take joy in animals, take joy in the plants, take joy in the sun shining down. If you have eyes to see it, you don't need a miracle in order to take joy in God. This whole creation is a miracle that God's sustaining for our pleasure and our joy every single moment. Just enjoy it. Um, And that will give you sustenance, spiritually speaking, if you can just enjoy this world God's created, it'll give you sustenance to face it when you have to face other people's sin. So, I mean, my brain's going like about 20 different places. Um, You know, Whitney mentions like taking enjoyment in the animals, and I, I am certainly someone who really enjoys animals. I really enjoy our cat Beatrice, I mean, I know that I treat her like she is a high school, you know, sophomore that is just like, life sucks. Um, But it doesn't, Beatrice. You have a family that loves you. And especially Josephine has gotten so sweet with Beatrice. It's so endearing. The first thing Josephine said when she stood up in her crib this morning after Mama was, it's B about Beatrice. (laughs) And, you know, one of the things that I realized is we have a child now, is one of the things that almost every human being teaches their child, you know, within the first couple of years of their life, is the names of animals. And I had this, uh, this epiphany, if you will, that that is, that is one of the unfallen tasks of humanity, is to know animals and to, to be able, like, like Adam and Eve are tasked with naming the animals. Obviously, they named them in whatever language they spoke. We speak English. But we, we are teaching our child to know what, you know, all the animals are called. And, you know, we thought about this because, you know, we're both teachers. Like, why is that, like, the thing that every kid learns? Like, why learn ostrich before you learn a whole bunch of other words that you're actually going to use in daily life. (laughs) And I think that it comes from the fact that God 
values animals. I mean, he saved every animal in the flood. And, and you know, just that concept of God loves animals. That's why he made them. And I know it's hard to think that, like, God loves poisonous snakes and spiders, but maybe he created them just to, to remind us to have boundaries with people. I don't know. And so, you know, I, I think that that point that Whitney made about, like, Zosima is, is, is trying to teach what I would call basic appreciation of God. And, and um, the, the epistle of Romans talks about, like, everyone has a built-in teleological understanding of God, which means they, they see that their body, you know, takes in breaths involuntarily. <laughs> their heart <laughs> beats involuntarily. Mm-hmm. And, and Our wounds heal themselves so often without us even having to do anything. I mean, you know, the, there is not just cosmological big picture order to the world. There is actually mechanical order to the trees breathe out oxygen. They breathe in ca- carbon dioxide. We breathe out carbon dioxide. We breathe in oxygen. It's a wonderful, you know, interdependency. And um, I think Zosima is is doing a great service to to the the people that are going to teach the faith to the Russian people. He's teaching these monks, teaching these priests, teaching these these you know future pastors. Here's how to show God to the people. Start with just enjoying animals, you know, because. The way that I enjoy Beatrice, which, I mean, granted, it is not the equivalent, but if it was a fox, because, let's face it, I love red foxes, arctic foxes, silver foxes, fennec foxes, I could leave, but uh, gray foxes are okay, but certainly red foxes are my favorite animal. If I had a red fox, I would never let go of it. Like, I, I, I would just, like, have to be hugging it all the time. And, and any time I didn't hug it, I would just be, like, just marveling at how, how lovely it is all the time. And that's how God wants to interact with us. He wants to have the same parent-child relationship with us that we have with Josephine. It's like Josephine is going to disappoint me. She's going to, you know, frustrate me. I'm sure that I will, you know, be disheartened by Josephine. But there is so much joy in having a child. And and it's like that's just a sliver of the relationship that God wants with us. As much as Whitney and I love Josephine and parents love their children, generally speaking, there there is so much more promise of joy and, and just contentment and peace and, and, and happiness in, in the relationship between God and, and a, a person. And, and he, he, he gave of himself, like he sent Christ the Son to earth so that we can have an eternal parent-child relationship. And, and 
it, it's amazing the degree to which people just really don't want that. And I think that some of that comes from just the brokenness of parents and children. And, and um, you know, this, this novel is a novel about fathers and sons. And um, we really don't get a lot of insight into, like, Grushinka's parents, you know, or Rakitin's parents. Uh, apparently their parents were siblings because they're cousins. <laughs> but um, there aren't that many other characters that we get parent-child interactions with. One of the few that we do other than the Karamazovs is Ilyushka and Whiskbroom. Oh, and the Koklikovs. And the Koklikovs. And so, uh, interestingly, the ones, like the parent-child relationships that we get are all very intimately connected to Alyosha rather than Ivan or Dmitri, although they do have, you know, Dmitri connects with the, the Yushka family and uh, <laughs> Ivan connects with the, um, the Koklakov family. I guess Dmitri does too. But, um, but I bring that up because here is this novel about a terrible father who really doesn't father, is just, all, all he does is just like you know, make children and then kind of gives them up. And yet Alyosha, you know, some people have a real hurdle for faith that say, like, I I have a terrible relationship with a parent and therefore it's very hard for me to trust God. And I think that I I respect that, like I, I, I dignify that, but I think that God is trying to send the message to those people that's, that's, that's because your relationship's supposed to be with me, you know. You, you're making me think about Dostoevsky's relationship with his father a little bit. Um, so when I read the biography by Joseph Frank, the, the whole beginning is so just interesting and good when you're reading about Dostoevsky's childhood. And apparently his father was just one of those people who gets irritated easily, so you could set him off without meaning to really easily. And he would make his kids, um, you know, follow this kind of rigid discipline and um, study really hard. And, like he wouldn't ever be pleased enough with how well their French was progressing and things like that. Just kind of hard-nosed with them. Um, and he also felt that in the world he was never being respected enough, so he would just complain a lot about how someone didn't show him enough respect. So, you know, just not the most fun person to be around. But, and Dostoevsky had his moments where he was um, bitter and angry with his father and regret, you know, things like that, had a tough relationship with him. But by the time he was an adult, he wrote letters to his brother that said, you know, not many people had a parent like us because he was able to recognize that his father had worked really hard to provide for him and had had a lot of like concern about his success in life and really had tried to help him in the best way he knew how. And that his father taught him that he needed to honor Christ. Like his father made sure that he was reading scripture too and went to church. And he said, you know, a lot of people don't have that from a father and your parent doesn't have to be perfect in order to, to serve you well in so many ways um that's why it's so striking i think that um theodore pavlovich is just simply not a parent he just doesn't try it at all and so 
that's the worst case scenario for Dostoevsky, I think. Not being a, a difficult parent who sometimes puts too many expectations on you or whatever, just not being a parent at all. Um, but, you know, I was doing a, um, a devotional for mothers recently, and the the writer was talking about how when her, her kids were babies, she would sing to them, sing songs with them, sing to them very frequently. And that they, when they're little babies, they're not bringing much to the table, but you just delight in them. You're just like, just, you just existing. is just so sweet and you're so adorable and precious and you don't have to do anything. And she mentioned this set of verses, which I actually have had in a little Ziploc bag in our shower to memorize because I find them so comforting and encouraging. But Zephaniah 3, 17, it says, the Lord your God is with you. He's mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. And she mentioned those verses and said, are we thinking of God as our just adoring parent who just sings over us and just spends time with us, just delights in us? Um, that goes back to each one of us compared to the the mind of God and the power of God, we're like little babies. Um, and he delights in us and sings over us. And Alyosha seems to be able to sense that. He says that, it says that each night before he goes to bed, he would just rejoice in God and praise God. And then this wonderful peace would come over him before he went to sleep. Um, he seems to just be able to sense that from God and then be able to apply it to other people too because he senses it deeply from God. And I think that, you know, the, the biggest challenge to, to his faith is when he, not when he loses his physical father, but when he loses his spiritual father in Zosima. And I think that there's something about having a spiritual mentor or teacher or pastor or whoever it is. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe it's your actual biological parent or, or adoptive parent but but to have someone that you think this person is going to delight in my relationship with God that is a great feeling and you know I seek to be that person to people that I teach like I, I you know I cherish getting to teach Christians because I see my role in their their lives as just an encourager in the faith and a brother in, in the faith. And I cherish getting to teach non-Christians because I, I get to be an example of Christ to them. And I might, you know, talk a little bit about my faith, but it's like I don't see my teaching of English and humanities as like, okay, this is my proselytizing time. It's It's like I really believe they will know us by our love. And if they see me as a source of love, they will want to know about the source of my love. And if they don't, then no matter what I teach, preach, say, reference, whatever, it won't come through as powerfully. And, um, and so, you know, just that concept of Alyosha has that same... I guess patience with both sides, you know, and and, and the the thing that shakes him is, is something that I think 
it is just common to to life. Like everyone loses people to death, and and you know, my dad has passed away. I'd say that's the most significant person that's passed away in my my life personally. Um, but you know, I've lost students. I've lost a colleague just this year. I I just lost one of my colleagues, and um, the, there just been people kind of all around you know in life. Like I've lost grandparents and. Um, and it just is hard. It's it's hard. It sucks. It's not. It's there's no fun in it. There's nothing about it that makes you say, <gasps> you know. But that is just a reality. And I think that that's that's one of the hardest things for children to come to terms with is this is just as normal as the sun shining or the grass getting wet when it rains. It's normal for people to die. It shouldn't be abnormal. And, and you know, for Josephine listening to this, you know, 50 years later or whatever, <laughs> you know, she may be listening to this after I've passed away. And, and my hope is that she feels grief, that she doesn't deny it, but that it doesn't paralyze her permanently. And that, that it becomes a trial that she undergoes through her faith and comes out of it stronger in faith. And, and I can certainly attest to I'm much stronger on the other side of my dad passing away than I was before. And it's because I had just the, the sequence of events in the Sunday school class I was teaching at the time where everyone in my class either lost a spouse or a parent like within a year. And so it was about 10 people total. And, um, and it was, you know, it was just a very um, sobering kind of just, you know, sad time. Um, but it was a great a time of great bonding. And I still feel, in, you know, immensely connected to those people, even though I haven't seen some of them for years. And, um, and I just think about just... That's where this novel ends. It is Alyosha telling the children, "Don't forget this. Don't you know? This is a moment we have all gotten to come together and express our love for our brother Alyushka." And just th- that he goes from like questioning his faith and and trying to like go headlong into sin when Zosima dies to Alyusha dying and him like leading by, you know, leading by example and teaching these kids, this is a great thing that has happened because it's given us something to to put into our memories and say, we were here together in this moment. And that that's such a hard, I mean, it's so counterintuitive to think it's better to lose someone you love because it brings you together with people that love that person and you, and you feel connected in that love than it is for them to be alive and you're all just like doing your own thing and not connected. It's kind of similar to how um, Zosima is telling the woman who comes to visit him who can't get over her son's death, telling her, um, go ahead and grieve. Um, keep weeping if, if you want to keep weeping or need to keep weeping, but just keep remembering that he is in heaven singing with the angels, you know, with Christ, just keep remembering that. And I, I think 
when you are a believer and you lose a person who is also a believer, just holding those two things in your mind at the same time is is important. Like on the one hand, I can just cry as much as I need to cry. And on the other hand, that person um, is rejoicing right now and not crying. And I'll, I will be there rejoicing with that person that I lost soon. In an eternal sense, extremely soon. So that balance. And, you know, that's, I think, I think Alyosha has to lose Zosima first to be able to, like, be sober-minded in losing his father, in losing Ilyushka, you know, his young friend. And um, it's just, it's remarkable to see, and I I marked this in this Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov by Arthur Trace. He says, Alyosha is one of the truly remarkable portraits of goodness in all literature. Dostoevsky had plenty of practice in portraying pure goodness or nearly pure goodness during his writing career and with some success, but Alyosha is not patterned after the sentimentally good characters of poor folk or white knights or a gentle creature or the insulted and the injured, nor is he any more Father Zosima, the superhuman character of, sorry, nor is he any more than Father Zosima, the superhuman character of Prince Mishkin in The Idiot. Um, And that sort of grammatically didn't make sense, but I think he was trying to point out like, Alyosha is not just a copy of another character in Dostoevsky. He is somehow a character that Dostoevsky had to wait his whole life to write. A realistically good character. It seemed to be what Arthur Trace was pointing out, that Dostoevsky, his whole career, wanted to portray goodness. But when he was younger, he was doing it in a way that was unrealistic. Like, a person couldn't achieve that level of goodness because it was you know, too long-suffering and never had a crisis or whatever. Um, or like The Idiot, you've read The Idiot, Adam, I haven't read it, but that that portrait is so otherworldly and di- like so different from any person who's ever lived. Yes. It feels like Prince Mishkin and The Idiot it is this... Um, he's almost like a Sesame Street character. Like, it, it's there's something about his goodness that just feels inflated. Like, like, like it's, it's something that could, could deflate and be nothing, if that makes sense. Whereas Alyosha's it, it, goodness, it, it's not, he's not a good character. He's a faithful character. And I think that that's, you know, no, no man is good but God. Like, that is what Christ says. No one is good but God alone. And so... When we think of, like, someone that's good, and, I mean, I've been, you know, I had a student tell me that I was a good man, and she was like, you know, you have a, you're a man of good character, and, you know, that, <laughs> that didn't turn out to be enough to keep her from, you know, doing something evil to me, but, but that, that was another trial that I had to face and that my faith had to be refined in and deepened in, and, um, you know, I think about that. It's like, I don't want to be called good. I want to be called faithful. And I, w- I want to be called someone who's a man after God's own heart. 
Zosima tells um, Alyosha that he's going to go through the world suffering but have joy anyway and that people are going, he's going to have enemies. There are going to be people who, who are his enemies, but even his enemies will love him in spite of themselves, which is so interesting. Like Rakitin, I guess, by that implication, like loves Alyosha and then is like, oh, why do I love him? And gets even more angry and expresses hate toward him. But I think that, you know, that, I guess, like, grudging affection or respect or something like that that Alyosha can inspire um, seems, well, okay, like, in The Idiot, right, um, Prince Mishkin is on the path he's on of goodness because he has seizures and in the, like, aura before the seizures, he has kind of a vision of universal benevolence and brotherhood. So that's a very special case. That's not something everyone could accomplish. Like he's a visionary kind of prophet because of an affliction that he has. Whereas Alyosha does seem to have been very much blessed with like a kind of loving temperament. And then God is capitalizing on that to, you know, use him in the world. Similarly, Zosima says that he was born with an easy temperament, easygoing, and that he has to work himself up to be mad and he doesn't naturally stay mad. So it's artificial for him to be angry. I think that there are people who are just blessed with something like a more loving temperament than others and good for them, you know, whereas other people are born with sort of a more, I guess, irritable temperament like Dostoevsky's dad and kind of him, I think to some extent too. Um, this book does a good job of showing that like all different sorts of temperaments could be redeemed. It's not just limited to someone like a tiny, tiny minority of people who were born like Alyosha with like sweet, loving hearts. I think that that connects to like his mother was faithful. And even though he lost his mother at a very young age, her faith had a positive impact on him. And, and that's, you know, I, I have, no fear for, like, if I die and Josephine's very young, I know it will be incredibly hard for her. Like, I, I know that, and I am sorry if that's the case, because I don't, you know, if it's if it's just up to me, I'd rather live to see my daughter be, you know, <laughs> you know 80, 80 years old, and I'm 118. But, um, but that's not realistic, you know, because death is realistic. It's realistic to think that you're going to die. And if I do die when Josephine is young, I hope that the faith that I have will show fruit in her life. And, and your prayers yes. are efficacious. Like his mother prayed for him. Yes. And so, yeah. And, you know, when he brings up that, and it's like, that kind of ties into what we're talking about, about like the personal elements of faith. Like there are elements of faith that Christ tells us it's better to be private about, like how, how you give and how you know, fat, you're fasting and um, various things that, that are sh- signs of faith. It's better to show them to God alone instead of to man and to get your praise on earth. And, um, you know, that's like... I do pray for Josephine, and I mean, I talk, to, I talk to, like, other Christians about when I pray for her, but in a way, it's private because it's like, well, I, I want God to hear it, 
And if other people hear it, great, but like they can't answer the prayer. Only God can answer the prayer. And the, the prayer it is really just for her spiritual identity because as much as like I trust God to affect her physical, mental, emotional health, he's the only one that can give her spiritual health. Like, yes, he's, he's, he's giving the ability to doctors and nurses. He's giving the ability to uh, counselors and therapists. Like, he's, he's giving the ability to those people to help, uh, you know, affect her physical and mental and emotional health. But, but really, it, it's, the world can't solve her spiritual problems. Only the church can, and only, the church can only do that because Christ is, like, the body of Christ is the church. And so, you know, this novel is really powerful because, like, I, I marked this as well in Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov by Arthur Trace. Faith, Dostoevsky maintains, must draw only upon the miracle of revelation scripture as the mysterious visitor did when he gave himself up to Father Zosima's, as Father Zosima's behest, and from love, just as Father Zosima had told Madame Holikoff, in as far as you advance in love, you will grow sure in the rea- of the reality of God and of the immortality of your soul. And if you attain to perfect self-forgetfulness in the love of your neighbor, then you will believe without doubt, and no doubt can possibly enter your soul this has been t- tried. This is certain. And, you know, that, that I think is so indicative of where Alyosha grows to by the end of the novel. He's so sure of God's love for him that, it, as it says, and as far as you advance in love, you will grow sure in the reality of God and of the immortality of your soul. He has no doubt of of the reality of God or of the immortality of his soul because he has actively loved to the point that Zosima makes, which is like active. So this is on <laughs> page 58. I remember it because I quoted it on Facebook the first, well, whatever, the second time I tried to read this uh, and didn't make it. Um, it's So this is Father Zosima teaching. He says... Uh, um, he says, never be frightened at your own faint-heartedness. So he's talking to Fedor Pavlovich, but you know everyone is in the room except for Dmitri. He's not there yet. He says, never be frightened at your own faint-heartedness. So this is chapter four of book one, A Lady of Little Faith. Or I think it's book one. Yeah, maybe it's book two. Um, never be frightened at your own faint-heartedness and attaining love, and meanwhile do not even be very frightened by your own bad acts. I'm sorry that I cannot say anything more comforting, for active love is a harsh and fearful thing compared with the love in dreams. Love in dreams thirsts for immediate action, quickly performed, and with everyone watching. Indeed, it will go as far as the giving even of one's life, provided it doesn't take long, but is soon over, as on stage, and everyone is looking on and praising. Whereas active love is labor and perseverance, and for some people, perhaps a whole science. But I predict that even in that very moment when you see with horror that despite all your efforts, you not only have not come nearer your goal but seem to have gotten farther from it, at that very moment, I predict, I predict this to you, you will suddenly reach your goal and will, cert- will clearly behold over you the wonder-working power of the Lord who all the while has been loving you and all the while has been mysteriously guiding you. 
forgive me not forgive me for not being able to stay with you longer, but I'm expected goodbye. So that that truth that he gives to uh, Fyodor Pavlovich and, and and Yusuf and Ivan and Alyosha and Rakitin, whoever else is in the room. Active love versus the love in dreams. I think that most people, especially in the internet age, want the love in dreams. They want this uh, cinematic love. They want to be able to perform that love, and they want that love performed on them. And in a way, that has happened. Like, Jesus died on the cross. There's nothing more cinematic than that. There's nothing more iconic than that. Like, literally, the cross is the most uh, common icon in the world. Um, closely followed by the apple. <laughs> the apple and, you know, the swoosh and the McDonald's M's and Starbucks logo. But the idea of active love and that Alyosha is performing active love increasingly in this novel shows the love that he has received from God. And I think that that's just a mark of the Christian. It is... As you know God's love for you, you become more loving to others. You become more forgiving to others. You become more merciful and gracious. And it's not that you deny them their sin. It's not that you say, oh, God doesn't care about that. But the way you interact with them about their sin is basically how Alyosha does, which is you get them to confess their sin just by you being there. And it's like that you are so open and, and loving to them that they feel like they can trust you enough to talk about who they really are. And as such, and like uh, Kolya is a good example of that. Like Alyosha just brings out Kolya's true identity. Um, and he does it for his father and for Dimitri and Ivan. And, and that's a sign that Christ is working through you to bring that person to faith. I think it's key that he's authentic. Father Zosima really emphasizes being authentic and not faking and not playing a role. At one point, Lise says to Alyosha, um, I can't tell you how much I respect you because you never lie. And like even at the very beginning, um, Zosima is you know, trying to convince Fyodor Pavlovich to stop lying and he says, um, the man who lies to himself and listens to his own lie comes to such a pass that he cannot distinguish the truth within him or around him, and so loses all respect for himself and for others, and having no respect, he ceases to love. So it's a process. Being fake, lying to yourself, lying to others, eventually makes you not be able to love anybody or yourself, because you have to love in truth. You have to love who people really are. And if you're fake, you bring out fakeness in other people. And if you're authentic, you bring out authenticity in other people. The hard part is if you bring out authenticity in someone and then it's ugly, how to not act out in force against the sin, but to act in humble love. I think of Ivan. He was very honest about his like doubts and, you know, anger at God with Ivan when they're sitting in that tavern. And as a Christian, sometimes when someone is very honest about their accusations against God and their distrust of God's character, it, it makes me mad. It makes me defensive of God. It makes me want to 
come down with force and convince them they're wrong and things like that. Um, but I think Alyosha, he has the right reaction, which is he kisses his brother. He shows his brother, hey, I still love you. You can tell me this and I love you. And that reflects the fact that um, God can also handle his anger and God still loves him and God still pursues him. You know, I was thinking about the concept of phoniness and probably the most famous novel about phonies, Catcher in the Rye. Holden Caulfield, I think, is someone who doesn't feel loved. And so he is looking for phonies everywhere he goes. And I think that that is just, you know, to Whitney's point, some people who are the most phony, who are the most fake, who are the most artificial are most upset by other people's artificialness. And, you know, I, I, I do not like people being artificial. <laughs> there are some people very close to me that are very artificial. And yet, how do I interact with them? Do I show them Christ's love, or do I want to, like, stay on the other side of the earth from them? I think that Alyosha he grows so much in his ability to be around people that, that have the, the, the like impulse to be artificial, like Rakitin, for example. And, and even like say, um, Katerina Ivanovna, like, I feel like Mm -hmm. she is artificial in her like sacrifice because her reality is pride. And, and, you know, to Whitney's point about like, what happens when you bring out the reality in someone? Does it make you get into their emotional wheel? And I think that that's the, the, ba- the big challenge. And we talked about that on the last episode with Dimitri. How to avoid toxic people. Well, the best way to avoid toxic people is to help people get rid of their toxicity. And Alyosha, there are times, like with Rakitin, their relationship distances over the course of the novel because Rick Keaton's true colors come out more and more. And Alyosha doesn't say, I refuse to spend, you know, I refuse to be with you. Rick Keaton doesn't want to be with him. Rick Keaton rejects being with him because he doesn't feel comfortable being with him. Well, that's okay. That's where, that's where their relationship is at that time. That's, that's probably where it has to be. I think what's difficult, you and I run into this when you're, you're close with someone, like you either work with them day by day or like you're in the family with them or whatever. You're, you're going to have them in your life. It's not like one of those things where, like with Rakitin where you could just distance um, and the person doesn't seem to want to be authentic with you. And every once in a while you try to be authentic and then they have a bad reaction and get mad at you or let out some some real anger or something. But like, I just feel like you and I have both been wrestling with this. Like, how do we handle it if we feel like someone's not being very authentic with us? Because for us, it can squelch us and make us stop being authentic and just get... I think for both of us, it's not so much that we start being super-duper fake. It's that we shut down and, and stop communicating when we feel like someone is being artificial around us. And how do we overcome so to speak, evil or artificiality with good instead of being shut down and ineffective ourselves when we're faced with it. And I think just realistically speaking, like 
everyone goes through f- phases of, um, you know, inauthenticity. Yeah. And and um, and certainly, it, it, it's coming from a fear of of being exposed, of being yourself, or being judged or whatever. Um, and you know, I think about that verse: "Perfect love casts out fear." And, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to love Josephine perfectly, nor is Whitney, but we're, we're going to do our best. And I will say that as a, one, you know, one point, whatever, six, seven, five-year-old, she's, um, she's pretty authentic. Like, Josephine, <laughs> I'll be like, do you want um, more berries? And she'll be like, nah. Like, she is just herself, and I hope, you know, whenever she's listening to this, whatever age, I hope that she will realize, like, God gave her the temperament she has. God gave her the ability to be herself. And the challenge and also the reward of the Christian life is being yourself in a way that glorifies God. And if yourself is someone who's like really manipulative. Well, that means you have you have adjusted to life in a way that says I need control over other people, and that's just wrong. And and to be able to come to that realization and say in my sober-mindedness, what am I doing begging for pig's food out here in the wilderness in a famine? My father is you know, it has plenty to eat, and ha- you know, I would love to just work for him and be a servant to him, and that's, of course, the, the story of the prodigal son, and and that we're all prodigals. We're all going to be sinful in some moment of our lives, or maybe many moments of our lives, but even an onion of faith, which, of course, goes to uh, the epigraph, you know, unless the seed uh, verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. And that even a seed of faith, the mustard seed of faith, can grow into being the largest tree, uh, giving life to the most animals and the most people. We certainly love mustard here in the deal house. Um, whole grain mustard on the uh, farmhouse number one. But um, Dijon mustard, whatever, um, the Jinglehofer, whatever it's called, that, that kind of mustard is really good. But, um, but Alyosha, I think, is he, he is the one that brings out those seeds of faith in others. You know, um, I think without Alyosha in the picture, I don't think Ivan could have confessed to the crime. You know, even though he's not the literal murderer, like he didn't beat his father to death, he's the one that inspired Smerdyakov to the same degree that, like, Charles Manson is held responsible for the Manson family murders, even though he wasn't at the crime scene. And I think that that's, that's a helpful illustration, as gruesome of a thing as that was. That's helpful for us to understand the degree that Dostoevsky is holding Ivan responsible. Yeah, he thinks of Ivan as one of the demons like the novel Demons, um, he called it that because he felt that the older generation of radicals, because they taught the younger generation to 
not honor God and not have any sense of absolute right and wrong and absolute truth, the younger generation took it and ran with it, and they were assassinating public figures and just creating violence and chaos. Dostoevsky pictured that as the demons and the pigs in the story where Jesus drives yes, the demons into yes. the pigs. And so that, that's the epigraph for that book. But the idea that the younger generation who are actually doing the violent acts are just like the pigs possessed by the demons, the ideas are the demons. So like the people who, the older generation that propagated the ideas, they're the demons. They're held responsible, even if they didn't do the violent acts themselves. And yeah. I think it's just a similar concept with Ivan and Smirnikov. And, you know, when you think about Russia, there were just enough generations, I think, I, I, maybe my math is off, but, like, the people that would have been... 90 years old when the Soviet Union fell would have been in their teens when the Russian Revolution happened. Okay, so the people that like started the Russian Orthodox Church really going again, and, and you know, we've talked about it in several other episodes. I think that there is a broken understanding with Russia, the government, and Russia, the Orthodox Church, that that is like coming into to play in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. But but the, that faith is growing in Russia. And there were certainly a lot of churches in the 90s in America that sent church plants to Russia and to Ukraine, actually. And um, so the, there has been a great desire in the Christian church overall to see Russia come to its senses, to see Russia come back to faith. And, and I think there were even people in Russia that were wanting Russia to do that. Um, but, you know, Dostoevsky's vision for Russia was so much bigger than his own lifetime. I mean, he, he saw things that would come to play 30, 40, 50 years, even you know, into a into hundred years after his death you know, these things were still affecting Russia, and we've watched the Americans enough to know, like, the attitude of Russia in the 1980s was pretty bleak. And um, just that they, you know, they as a people group are starting to come back to faith to, to the degree that they are is, is just a mercy of God. And, um, you know, I just I think about that idea of how you raise up the next generation do you raise them to think it is you know that coolness is the most important thing do you raise them to think that just like you know live your truth is is the most important thing or like love is love you know or like these things that I would say are like um cultural zeitgeist um you know slogans you know um I mean when I was growing up one of the big slogans was just do it Nike, um, and and even though that was a corporate slogan, it was very much indicative of like the nineteen eighties and nineties. Just like personal peace and affluence, yeah. If everything is permitted, just do it. Don't plan, you know. Don't don't obsess over your plans. Don't don't say you're gonna do it. Just do it. And Nike has just completely abandoned that. Like, that's not really, they don't really have a slogan anymore. I think it's just the brand. Like, the brand is all that matters. And, um, 
you know, Ayosha, I think, is, is doing a good job of not just giving slogans to these children, but giving true hope and true love. Because those are things that will outlast. Like, coolness mattered to me when I was 15, maybe even when I was 25. By the time I get 35 and my dad passes away, I just couldn't care any less about coolness. And, you know, I know that Josephine will will have her eras of being influenced by different things, but my hope is that she sees our intentionality of influence with her that says, we are leading you on a path that is the most flourishing path, is the most life-giving path, is the most ultimately joyful path. And love is love is the ultimate lasting influence it's not fear like a lasting um relationship with god comes from love and not fear um it's also not um awe at someone's coolness like love is the most lasting influence so i I like what you're saying about Alyosha is influencing those boys through love he's not trying to look awesome to them he's not trying to talk about himself and puff himself up and i think it's tempting to do that when you're dealing with young people to try to look awesome to them and make them want to hang on your every word or something. He rarely even seems to like give them advice or to say much of anything to them. He just gently gives a little bit of advice here and there and tries to be honest with them. But mostly he just listens to them and just spends time with them. And at the end, the the speech he's giving them is not really a speech as much as it's just like, I love you. I love that I've gotten to spend time with you. I have to go away now, but please never forget this because this is a special time for all of us. So please just always remember it, and it will just really help you to remember that we had this love for each other. Yeah, it's it's an, it's an exhortation at the end, um, and it makes me think, <laughs> to, to talk about myself, um, it makes me think about the epigraph that I put on. So I made like a set of sonnets for my family that are like all about Nashville and basically like <laughs> Nashville before the flood. Um, there was a big flood in 2010 and like really ever since then, like Nashville has just been a comp- you know increasingly uh, unrecognizable city because all that that stuff that got ruined by the flood got like bought up and changed and... <laughs> And um, almost all the things that the sonnets are about are no longer there. Um, Some of them are, like Lonnie Young's shoes, shout out. They're not sponsoring us or anything. But one day, someday, I'm sure Josephine will get a pair of shoes from Lonnie Young's because Patty Cake, my mom, will take her and get her some shoes, and that'd be great. But um, the the epigraph of that was from Wordsworth, and um, I... Whitney, will you just go grab the book? Yep. Um... I think of it because I, I think that that epigraph that I picked is is almost identical to the the feeling of the ending of this book. Does that make sense? So re, read well, it. Let's, let's read it and yeah. see if it makes sense. <laughs> okay. Also, shout out to my cousin Kelly who bound the book and did the illustrations. It's it's has marbled end pages. It's, it's so very beautiful. beautiful. Um. Okay. If solitude or fear or pain or grief should be thy portion, with what healing thoughts of tender joy wilt thou remember me? And these my exhortations. 
And it just, uh, to me, like when I finished Brothers Karamazov, I, I just thought instantly of that. And um, I think that there is just a great desire in the human heart to connect to other people. And uh, particularly, as the Wordsworth quotation says, if these like things that we think of as negative be your portion, you know, grief or solitude, if those are the things that you are facing, that that's a good time to remember the love that someone has for you or the experience that someone had with you. And, um, and that's where the novel ends, is, is basically remember this. And, you know, Alyosha is saying it to the boys, to all of the Yuska's friends, but really I think Dostoevsky is saying it to the reader as well. And um, the ending is just so beautiful. I actually want to talk about it more on the final episode, but I'm just going to read the, you know, the last, like, you know, it says, uh, ah, how I loved him, exclaimed Kolya. By the way, we're going to talk about Kolya on the, the you know, smaller characters, like, like you know, the, the, the minor characters episode. Ah, children, ah, dear friends, don't be afraid of life. How good life is when you get something good and rightful. Yes, yes, the boys repeated ecstatically. Karamazov, we love you, a voice which seemed to be kept. Kartsakov's <laughs> exclaimed irrepressibly. We love you, we love you, everyone joined in. Many had tears shining in their eyes. Hurrah for Karamazov, Kolya proclaimed ecstatically. And memory, external, memory eternal for the dead boy, Alyosha added again with feeling. Memory eternal, the boys again joined in. Karamazov, cried Kolya, can it really be true, as religion says, that we shall all rise from the dead and come to life and see one another again, and everyone, even and, and Ilyashinka? Certainly we shall rise, certainly we shall see and gladly, joyfully tell one another all that has been, Alyosha replied, half laughing, half in ecstasy. And how good that will, how good that will be, burst Kolya, burst from Kolya. Well, and now let's end our speeches and go to his memorial dinner. Don't be disturbed that we'll be eating pancakes. It's an ancient, eternal thing, and there's good in that, too, laughed Alyosha. Well, let's go, and we go like this now, hand in hand. And eternally so, all our lives hand in hand. Hurrah for Karamazov, Kolya cried once more ecstatically, and once more all the boys joined in, joined in his exclamation. It's such a beautiful ending because the novel is all about the like the evil streak that is is innate in the Karamazovs. And in the end of the novel, The Karamazov that that you know last to the end is is Alyosha and and you know the the boys are saying, hooray for him, and you know it's hard it's impossible to say hooray for Fyodor Pavlovich and it's very hard to say that for Dmitri and it might even be hard to say that for Ivan but but for Alyosha it's it's like it's a joy to say that and it's just so. It ends with so much beauty that couldn't be there without the death of Ilyushinka. 
And and it, it is a sad time. I mean, of course it's sad. A child has died. But in that moment, Alyosha tries to show them there is a purpose to it and there is something of love in it and that it couldn't have been as loving if he had been alive. And, and you know, that's just such a, such a powerful ending. Um, and I just, I just love that it ends with Alyosha. And I, I love, I just love everything about it. And, and my favorite thing about it is when it says, um, Alyosha replied half laughing, half in ecstasy. Even though I'm obviously crying right now. <laughs> you know, hopefully everyone that knows me like knows how much how much I love to laugh. And just thinks of me as an ecstatic person. And I just, I love that Alyosha is in that emotion and that, like, it's okay to have. <laughs> it's okay to be ecstatic because the world will tell you it is not okay to just have ecstasy in the Lord. But it is. And it's such a beautiful thing. And, and I hope that people find their joy in God because it is the most beautiful thing in the world to see someone whose faith is just uncorruptible and, and devout and, and, and unshakable because they know how unshakable God's love is for them. Alyosha also says to the boys... Perhaps we may even grow wicked later on and may be unable to refrain from a bad action, may laugh at men's tears and at those people who say, as Kolya did just now, I want to suffer for all men and may even jeer spitefully at such people. But however bad we may become, which God forbid, yet when we recall how we buried Ilyusha, how we loved him in his last days and how we have been talking like friends all together at this stone, the cruelest and most mocking of us. If we do become so, we'll not dare to laugh inwardly at having been kind and good in this moment. I think that what he's saying is that even people who aren't corrupted all the way down can sometimes jeer and laugh at, at people for crying or showing a genuine emotion or at people for showing ecstasy. But we don't know that deep down those people might still have a tenderness to them and a soft spot in them that can be redeemed. So don't, even if people jeer at you for your emotion, genuine emotion, somewhere inside of that person who's jeering, they have genuine emotion too that could be reached by God. And even though I'm clearly just ugly crying at this point, 
I hope you can tell on, on audio, um, but <laughs> I, <laughs> I just, you know, I, I hope that it's bringing you joy to know that I've got to have an emotional experience. Like, I haven't been able to cry like this. I've been on this medication for depression and anxiety for over a year, and I haven't been able to cry like this, and I've had some... <laughs> had some really hard things happen to me. But I'm just so grateful that Dostoevsky wrote this novel and that it ends it ends the way it does because it is so much easier to, to write and record and, and film and, and, and make these pieces of art that, that elicit other emotions. Um, but that like it is a good thing to grieve. It is a good thing to be sad, you know, in its time. And and sometimes it just takes something to just like like pop the fifty seven on the ketchup bottle and get the ketchup coming out if you've never you know, hit a glass bottle of ketchup to get pop ketchup out and you haven't lived, but that's why the 57s are there. That's, like, where you're supposed to hit in the bottle. Today, I learned this. Um, and so, just that I've been able to have, like, a, 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 you know, tears and, and, and just be able to have this deep emotional reaction, like, I'm very grateful for that. And sometimes it's hard to be grateful for the, the opportunities we have to show genuine emotion because it's so scary and it's so we, we're so vulnerable or we're so uh, out of out of the norm it's it's like I can't be that weird and and what I've realized is like I you know I, I would rather be an you know an idiot for god than the wisest person on earth or the most revered person on earth like like it, it is better to, to have one day in his courts than thousands elsewhere. And and, and I think Alyosha is it, just such a, an encouragement from Dostoevsky because, you know, Dostoevsky lost a child named Alexei, you know, Alyosha. And, and, you know, he's using, he's using his fiction to just kind of like, like give his son more life on earth while he knows he's in heaven and he knows that he's going to be able to see him for eternity, which is much longer than he would have gotten to see him on earth. But just that like this novel is this love letter to his son and to the, the dignity that God gave him as his father. And, you know, for, for Josephine's sake and any other children that we might have after Josephine, I, you know, I, I hope that they just know like how much Whitney and I love them and you know that they just understand that they have love built into them to such a degree that it should never leave them and and you know I, I've been blessed to have parents that love me and Whitney is, is the same and, and you know for those people that, that had parents that treated them like Fyodor, uh, Fyodor Pavlovich did to Alyosha you know there is redemption in Christ there, you can find 
saving faith, saving identity. But it is so hard, and, and I just mourn for that. And, 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 you know, the best thing I can do is just tell them about Jesus, tell them about the Father, you know, just, just like how God wants to be our Heavenly Father. And, and, you know, it's interesting in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And it's the uh, sixth Beatitude. And the, you would think that's the ultimate, like, oh, man, if I could see God, I'd have no doubt. And yet there's another Beatitude after that. Well, there's two. But the, the one that comes after that is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And that, like... Seeing God isn't the be-all, end-all. The be-all, end-all is being the sons of God and the daughters of God. And, and that the last beatitude, which is, you know, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's just a reiteration of the first reward of faith, which is that you're a member of the kingdom of heaven. And, and I love that Alyosha is not like as overtly Russian, <laughs> you know, it's like he, he is so mindful of the kingdom of heaven that he's not like getting bogged down by Russia, even to the degree that Dostoevsky did. I, I think that there's something about that purity of heart, blessed are the pure in heart. And, and that's why I think it's so important for people to turn to Christ in their youth, because then you never get this idolatry of your land, your family, your whatever it is that, that can that can become the be all end all. Um and and you know I'm grateful to, to have come to faith in Christ when I did in, in my you know early youth. Um and, and I certainly have had many trials and ups and downs of faith since then, but but even now coming up on forty years old, I just think this novel is is just such a such a gift from God, you know, delivered to Fyodor Dostoevsky, um, and that he delivered it to us. And I think that that's something we talked a lot about with with Flannery O'Connor as well. Is like she just channeled the Holy Spirit into her stories, such that we're getting truth from God in her stories. And 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 Fyodor Dostoevsky is the same way. I don't really know what to add. Well, um, we'll, we'll just you know stop there for Alyosha. We obviously got plenty left to talk about with the major episodes. Um, so uh, the next episode is going to be the women, um, and then we're going to do minor characters and then major episodes. So major episodes, we're going to do the scene at the seminary, the um, uh, Grand Inquisitor, the... Um, just like the the McCroy or McCrow like like blowout party and and like all of that, uh, we're gonna do the scene with Grushinka, the Onion, um, and then we're gonna do the Ivan's dream with with Satan, um, and we'll probably talk about the the ending some more there or on the last episode. So uh, we look forward to talking more about the Brothers Karamazov with you, and we'll see you next time.